Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. If I haven't met you, my name's Terry McHugh. I serve as the executive pastor around here. I always like to say it makes me sound way more important than I actually am but really honored to be part of this team, part of this uh, body of Christ, and to be together. And so we've been in a series uh, that we're calling the seven daily sins based on the seven deadly sins that were talked about and really developed and codified in medieval uh, theologians, Thomas Aquinas and others. And they are not in the Bible per se, but they reflect our experience and the things that we um, fight with. And, you know, have you ever noticed, like, if you buy a red car, you see red cars everywhere? So I find that we're in this series, I kind of see, you know, the seven deadly sins everywhere. My husband Joe and I were at a grocery store the other day, and we were looking for some wine for cooking. (laughs) And we saw this. Remote... It was on and I turned it off. It's called the Seven Deadly Zins. <laughs> Zinvindel. I love it. But Pastor Chip has shared that sin is being curled in on oneself. It's self-worship. It's putting other things where God belongs. And sins are breaking the rules, but sin is an underlying condition. And it's something that is it's deep within us and It's something that we can't escape, but we can be rescued from. And it's something that we really need to pay attention to. I I remember when I was new to faith and just kind of exploring, this is way before ministry, I thought I was a pretty good person, you know, and I didn't do anything really bad. Like, I didn't murder people. Um... But the more I got to know Jesus, the more I realized how sinful I was. And this is a little example. It also dates me. But there used to be a thing with the grocery store that you cut out coupons. Remember that? Not on your phone. So I used to do that, trying to be, you know, thrifty. But what I would do sometimes is try to use, like, expired coupons or kind of shove one in that didn't really belong to get the extra money off. And it wasn't until I started coming to know Christ, like, that's sin. And I was convicted. And I realized that, you know, the more I've been on this journey, the, the, more, the worse I realize I am. You know, in one way to talk about the gospel, we've shared this many times, is that you're far more wicked than you ever dared believe, but you're far more loved than you ever dared hope at the very same time. And that's the tension we live in. And why are they deadly? Because they have the power to maim, really even to destroy And so every week we've been going over one of the seven daily sins, deadly sins. And when you think about it, like some of them you might like, oh yeah, that one gets me. Like you might be convicted or like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. 
But when we look at it, it's almost like the seven deadly sins are, are like a black diamond with all these facets. And as you turn it, you can see the different aspects and the different angles of the sins. And you realize that underneath, it's all the same thing. It's our brokenness. Every single sin shows us how sin infects and affects us. And our desires are disordered in such a way that we focus on the wrong things so often. St. Augustine gave this tendency we have, concupiscence. I never said that word out loud until the first service. But it's a wonderful word. It has a root that means longing, yearning. We hear the word Cupid, the god Cupid. It has to do with that kind of longing. It can be associated with more lust, as Pastor Steve talked about last week. But concupiscence. And so our desires have been distorted in such a way that we crave things beyond God. And so today, gluttony. I think I'm going to stop making you look at the wine. Because <laughs> you're probably thinking... Okay, we're listening to Terry today. We're all gluttons for punishment. Uh, I know. But anyway, it's from the Latin root meaning to gulp down, to swallow. And we most often think about it in relation to food and drink. But it's so much more than that. We're going to dig into that a little bit today with the story of Aiken. In many ways, our culture grooms us to be gluttonous. We're called consumers. And that started to shift in the 1920s. And so that in some ways I feel like, I don't know about you, that marketers and corporations feel like the goal of our lives is to consume. It's consumption. But that's not what God designed us for. But we live in a world of all-you-can-eat buffets, supersized fast food meals, big gulps. We go to a restaurant, we don't get enough food for three meals, and we're like, what's going on here? You know, there's something called the major league eating, sort of like major league baseball, and they regulate eating contests. So things like the Nathan's hot dog eating contest, the 4th of July weekend. I found there's also a wing eating contest at Hooters. The last winner ate 184 wings in 10 minutes. There's also an oyster eating contest, and the latest winner of that ate 46 dozen, dozen oysters, again in 10 minutes. I tell you, one time I had a way long, long ago and far away, I had a, uh, a boyfriend, and we were in Boston, and he dared me to eat a raw oyster. I cannot imagine eating 46 dozen. I barely got through one. You know, 45% of Instagram users use the, uh, the platform to show pictures of food, of restaurants, and there's a hashtag food that has millions and millions of um, entries. There's even a hashtag food porn for showing off what you make. And I joke with my husband. My husband and our youngest son, Colin, both use the big green egg. That's a, for grilling. And so they are constantly trying new things, and they send each other pictures. I say, you guys are just doing food porn. <laughs> you know? But in the Bible, we see eating all the time. There are all these feasts that, that Israel, that God commanded Israel to, to follow, to practice. Jesus ate 
with everybody. He fed the 5,000. His first miracle was at a wedding reception. Food is a good thing. Drink is a good thing. But we've distorted it because of our concupiscence, because of our distorted and disordered desires and cravings. Gluttony, like most sins, is a perversion of something good. Paul said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And then he says, all things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated. Dominated by anything. That's where the problem comes in. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, the medieval monk, and with our um, blessing the pets we're going to do on that fall fun day, that, that's really in many churches celebrated because of him. He loved animals. But in a very playful way, what he, the way he talked about his body was he said, brother ass, donkey, you know, I, I got to put this one away. I thought it was really funny. Flora thinks it's funny. I thought it was funny to, I thought it was funny to say ass in church. But he meant donkey. And so he's really saying with that, he's being playful, but he's saying that we are not to be the, the servant of our bodies. We're to be respectful and treated as a brother, as a family member, reverently in some ways, but not to be mastered by it. And act, act, I've, Acton's story will help us get some insights into gluttony in its you know, big picture, not just food, because food isn't even involved with Aiken. It's beautiful things, it's objects, it's things that are worth, worth a lot of money. But, you know, I've worked with Pastor Chip for, believe it or not, almost two decades. We were both five when we came here. <laughs> and there's a Chipism that I've always loved, and he says, we're all sinners, just on different subjects. And I want to say we're all gluttons, but just on different subjects. Some more visible and obvious, and some less visible and obvious. Some involving physical things like food and drink, some involving internal things, like things that we hanker after. You know, there's other things, other examples of gluttony can be retail therapy. You know, I was looking on X, formerly known as Twitter, which kind of makes me think of Prince, formerly known as, or the artist, formerly known as Prince. I don't know. But, um, but anyway, I saw it said, feed your need for fashion. I, I, we're encouraged. And, you know, so I'm guilty. My husband Joe's back there. He will say that once in a while, I might go to Kohl's and buy things. Once in a while. And I, you might notice I wear shiny things. It's something I started doing years ago, and I just kind of kept doing it. And I just say, look, it's to distract you when I say dumb stuff. That's the reason I do it. But you know, the online world provides plenty of opportunity for gluttony. Look how we talk about streaming services. I'm going to binge watch on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. We can go down rabbit holes on YouTube and just go from one thing to another. And the algorithm is designed to keep us on there, to be gluttons, to go from one thing to another, to keep on watching. And even on other ways in social media, and there's so many examples, but we're hungry for likes. We, we want to suck up as many as we can. And again, we just keep going and spending time and spending time. Now, social media is a good thing. It 
shopping isn't even a bad thing. I mean, we have to wear stuff. But it's when it becomes disordered, when we give in to that concupiscence. So a story um, about pot-bellied pigs, I don't know if you know what those are, but um, they have become quite the problem in some areas in the Northeast. They're kind of an invasive species. And what happened was people started marketing them. They import them from Southeast Asia. And they would give them really cute names, like teacup pigs or mini pigs. Cute, yes, very cute. But what many people don't know is that as adults, they can be two or 300 pounds. So a lot of people bought them, think they're going to be these cute little miniature animals. They're going to feel great. And then they find they can't manage them. So what do they do? They let them go. Now, these things can reproduce at a very young age. So guess what? There are lots of pot-bellied pigs, and they're not many. That's a good example to me. People wanted these pets so much that they kind of created a monster. They couldn't control it. They just let it go, and there was destruction and disease in its wake. You know, Jesus himself was accused of gluttony by the religious leaders of his time. You don't believe me? Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so these are the people that are, the religious leaders of the time are judging and they're casting aspersions on Jesus. And then Jesus, in, in Matthew 23, there's this whole list of woes, and it's woe to you, you Pharisees and scribes. And he says this one, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So they were accusing Jesus of being gluttonous with food and drink. And he's saying, look guys, you've got something going on inside. You are gluttons, you have gluttony for greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate so that the outside also may become clean. Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who are blind to their own sins as we so often are. And so today we have the case of Achan. We heard the words from Joshua read. And as I said, in Achan's case, it had nothing to do with food and drink. It had to do with, with objects, material wealth. And the opposite of gluttony is self-control. And we all need self-control about something, if we're honest. And so the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, tells the story of the Israelites coming into the Promised Land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'd been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're finally coming to the Promised Land. Now, before I really came to be more familiar with the Bible, you know, early in my faith journey, I always thought that when the Israelites got to the Promised Land, it was just all open country. It's like, come on, guys. But that's not the case. There were other people living there, the Canaanites, and God had been very patient with them because they were very sinful. But when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, they were actually con conquer conquering it. It was a conquest. But here's something very important. God says to them, you are not to be like other people when they go into conquer a village or a city or an area. You are not to take any spoils for yourselves. 
Anything that comes from that is to be set aside for me, for the tabernacle and later the temple. But you are not to be like a pirate. You're not to be like those other countries, those other nations. The Lord essentially said they were never to take wealth as plunder. This approach, I can't tell you enough how different this was from every other nation, every other people. And so the Israelites had been following that, and they won the Battle of Jericho. But then they went on to the next battle at AI, not artificial intelligence, (laughs) AI, and they lost. And so Joshua goes to the Lord and says, what happened? What's going on? And this is what God says. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I imposed on them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have acted deceitfully. And they have put them among their own belongings. You will be unable to stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Achan had fought in the battle of Jericho. He knew full well what the rules were. But his cravings got the best of him. And he took these things anyway. So as we look at this story today, the case of Achan, we're going to look at the depth of craving, the depth of our craving. We're going to look at the structure of our craving. And then we're going to look at healing of our craving. So the depth of our craving. After Joshua heard from the Lord, he went to see Achan and to talk to him and he confessed right away. You don't, he said, yes, I did it. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, it was an accident. Didn't mean to take it. He wasn't surprised at the consequences. And so Achan shows us that gluttony affects our hearts in such a way that we will do things that can be harmful to us in order to get the thing that we're craving. That's the depth of our craving. There's a wildlife researcher, Michael Barron, who is uh, doing some observation in the Everglades in Florida, and he came upon a very strange and disconcerting sight as he was walking through. He saw a 13-foot python that had tried to eat a six-foot American alligator. So it had coiled around the alligator and ate it, but the alligator was so big it just burst out of him. So there's this bizarre situation where half the alligator is sticking out of this python. I think that's a great image when our appetites and our cravings become so large that we do something and we can't resist it like Aiken, and it ends up having serious, maybe even fatal, consequences. That's the depth of our craving. But like most of us, Aiken didn't get there right away. There's four steps here, three steps before he actually took it. We tend to think someone is going to do, you know, do something, take something, and they just do it. But Aiken gives us kind of a slow-motion picture of what the process actually looks like. So we see four steps. Let's take another look. This is what I did. This is Aiken speaking. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. They now lie hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. 
This passage shows us, as I said in, in slow motion, that, that there's steps leading up to the carrying out of Achan's gluttony, the taking of those things. It didn't happen right away. It didn't start with the taking. If you think of the first three steps as a race, the fourth step is really just the finish line when you're going through the ribbon. That's the last thing that happens. And all along the way, you can stop. You can start at step one and divert yourself. Or if you go one and then two, you can divert yourself from that, even when you get to three. So first it says, and there's really an exit ramp for each one of these sins, and we'll, we'll talk about that just a little bit. But the first thing it said, I saw. The word saw is the Hebrew word. It's very often translated, behold. It means to really go beyond noticing to gazing, to really looking at something in depth. Now, you may not plan on going further, and you can stop yourself if you know that there's something that uh, tempts your concupiscence, that tempts your cravings, you can avoid it. 12-step meetings help with that. Or you might have friends, accountability partners. You know what things to avoid. So if you notice you're noticing something and it's starting to go to gazing, a more in-depth look of it, then you can stop yourself. The second step is, I weighed. Now, it doesn't actually say he weighed the things, but look at, look at it. 200 shekels of silver. Now, if it was five, if it was 10, you can tell that by looking at it. But to notice, know that it's 200, it's kind of like looking at you know, a jar full of marbles and guessing how many are in there. He had to pick them up and count them. He had to weigh the gold. He had to pick it up and examine it, checking it. He went beyond just gazing it. He had to put his hands on it. He had to almost caress it. And in Hebrew, the same word that's used for weight can also mean glory. It's spiritual weight of something. And so he's really giving glory to these physical things and not to God. So I'm marinating that. What are you, what am I thinking about, craving, focusing on, looking at dimensions, measuring it, weighing it? It could be a situation. It could be a relationship. It could be an object. But what are those things? There was Bishop William Temple had a great question. He called it the solitude question. And he said, what is it that you think about when you don't have anything else to think about? Where does our mind go? What gives us, how do we try to comfort ourselves? It's an indication of what you worship. And if you have something like that, and most of us do, we've gone beyond gazing to weighing. Again, he could have taken the exit ramp. He could have stopped it right here, but he didn't. And so he goes on to coveting. Direct violation. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Coveting is really to long for something, to, to want it. In some ways it's become acceptable and even valued in our culture. There's a hashtag on Instagram that just says coveting. There's coveting magazine. Their tagline is the art of living at the highest level. When we covet something, we think about it. You could say that sin is an inflammation of the imagination. We allow things to get a grip on us and to distort us, to fill us. 
Achan knew about the honor of God. He knew about the rules. He knew that what he did was wrong. But he set his imagination not on God and his people, but on these things, these set-aside items. And so finally, if you don't stop at those exit ramps, you get to the fourth step, you cross the finish line, and you take it. He couldn't resist, even though he knew there were mortal consequences. And this may seem kind of brutal to us. I didn't, we didn't read the verse that comes after where it really says that Achan and his possessions were taken and stoned and burned. It seems brutal. It's hard for us to understand. But what it's trying to tell us is that's how important it was to give the things to God and not keep them for themselves. So we looked at the depth. We've looked at the structure of craving. How do we get healed? There's a man named Paul Ford who wrote about his struggles with gluttony in Wired magazine, and don't be distracted by the fact that he happens to be talking about food. But he said that he had tried for many years to control his weight. He'd been on weight loss regimens, he'd been written blogs about it, he'd gotten all kind of treatment, and nothing seemed to help, nothing would last. And so finally he got a medical intervention. He was becoming diabetic, and so he got an injection, a medicine that you take by injection, and he found, and this is what happened to him. He said, I have been the living embodiment of gluttony since I was 10 years old, and now the sin is washed away. Baptism by injection. But I have no more virtue than I had a few months ago. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. There. Where before my brain had been screaming, screaming at air raid siren volume, there was sudden silence. It was confusing. I urgently need, I thought, something to fill the silence where food used to be. Every night for weeks, he says he spent hours working with like synthesizers and making just sounds, not even music, and you know, watching YouTube videos for hours to distract himself. He said he was just droning, looping, and beep-bopping. I needed something to obsess over. Thomas Chalmers, in the 19th century, he was a, a pastor and a community leader and he was working with uh, people in Edinburgh that were living in poverty, and he said that he noticed that many of them had really life-altering, damaging habits. And he ended up writing a sermon that was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In other words, the only way to replace something that's unhealthy, something that might be damaging us, is with something new. We saw that Paul Ford did that, by replacing his obsession with food and his gluttony for food with a gluttony for synthesizers and YouTube videos. But that's not the kind of substitution we need. The expulsive power of a new affection, the only way that you can replace, release the soul from the power of a beautiful object is to replace it with a more beautiful one. John Donne, I was an English major in my former life. He wrote a sonnet called Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. And he said, for you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Never shall be free, 
nor ever chaste, unless you ravish me. That's a little racy. What a risque thing to say. But he says, take me to you, God. Imprison me, because if, if you don't, if I'm not looking to you, I'm going to be imprisoned by something else. And he knew that. Jesus is the beautiful thing. And not to just believe in him in a general way, but to get to know him, to have a relationship. Through reading scripture and worship and prayer. That he's not just something you know, someone you know about, but someone that you know. I shouldn't really be dependent on this. But I am. I'm a glutton for iPads. <laughs> it's always something, right? That's what Roseanne Rosanna Danny used to say on Saturday Night Live in the early years. Again, dating myself. All right, sorry about that. And some of you may have already gone to a place where you feel like you've gone through those four steps and that your life is destroyed in some way. But God says, no, no, if you turn back to me, if you repent, I can renew your life. I can take you from the valley of Acre, which came to mean evil and terrible things, and turn it into a place of hope. The prophets knew that that hope was possible. And Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run to per with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what Paul Ford said later in the article. He said, how long is it before there's an injection for your appetites, for your vices? Maybe they're not as visible as mine. Would you self-administer a weekly anti-avarice shot? Can big pharma cure your sloth, lust, wrath, envy, pride? Well, you know, big pharma can't cure us. Only Jesus can. We can only lay aside that sin that sings so closely when we put our eyes on Jesus. Now, Achan experienced a terrible death because of his sin. Jesus experienced a terrible death because of our sin and to save us. Achan, for the riches set before him, lost his life. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, and as Pastor Chip has said many times, that joy is us for the joy of giving his life that we might have life and life eternal. Achan says, gimme. Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. And so the prophet Hosea envisioned the transformation of the Valley of Acre. He said, from there, I will give her her vineyards and make the Valley of Acre a door of hope. When we gaze at Jesus and his terrible death, the Valley of Acre becomes a place of hope. It's transformed. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is standing at the door. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus right-sizes our disordered, supersized cravings and returns us. He's the very bread of life. He's the main course. That's why we need daily bread. Every day we need it. Every day. And so God calls us gluttons to a real feast, the marriage supper and the lamb in Revelation, when we'll feast together. And so knowing that that's coming... Well, so if you have a great meal and you know that you're going to have dessert, you're going to save a little room, right? You might be offered more and you say, well, I'm going to save room for dessert. When we know that this incredible feast is coming, it's easier for us to be more moderate in the things that, in our cravings, the things that we feel led to instead of God. There's kind of a corny story that Pastor Chip has shared, and you may have heard it. Um, I think it's good. And look, when things are corny, when they're cliched, it's usually for a reason. There's some truth in there. But the story is a woman who found that she had a terminal illness and she was meeting with her pastor to kind of plan the service. And she said, you know, these are the hymns, these are scriptures, and all kind of other details. And the pastor thought they were done. And she said, no, there's one more thing. She's like, okay. She said, I want there to be a fork in my right hand. It's like, okay. And he said, look, you know, whenever I've been at a church potluck or a dinner, people always tell you, keep your fork. So you have it for dessert. And so she's like, and so I would keep my fork because I knew that I was going to have a gooey chocolate cake or a great apple pie, a great dessert. And so she said, when they see me in the casket and they say, what's with the fork? You can say, The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Keep your fork. Keep your fork. And so, Jesus is standing at the door waiting, that door of hope, for us to open and to have that daily bread with him. It's the only way, the expulsive power of a new affection to replace the beautiful things with something even more beautiful our Lord and Savior. May God help us do that. Let us pray. God, we, we turn to you in whatever condition we find ourselves, whatever things, cravings we may have, whatever, whether they're visible, invisible, known only to us. And help us turn to you to place our gaze on you and lay aside every sin and every weight and give glory only to you. It's a daily task, Lord. That's why you give us daily bread. That's why you're the main course and that you gave everything that we might have life and life eternal. Help us to live into that in the here and now. We know that feast is coming. We know it's going to be amazing. But you're with us right here and right now and you're inviting us to eat with you, to share a meal with you, to share life with you. So God, be our daily bread. Be our sustenance. Help us to return our desires to right-size them, and to not get caught up in, in things that might bring us glory but don't bring you glory. We can only do it with your power. In Jesus' name, amen.